0: Good morning, church, and God bless. If you have your Bibles with you, I'll turn to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Our text is chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, and all of chapter 3. We're now in part 3 of our series, The Providence and Sovereignty of the Unseen King. Now, last week's text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, our focus was on the selection. Of Esther. So, a quick review here. It has been four years between chapters one and two, and King Xerxes made an attempt to invade and conquer Greece, but he failed and came back home in humiliation instead of honor. So, now that he's home, he's most likely reflecting on his failed campaign and the fact that he has no queen. So, he's down and depressed and bitter, and it seems like everything is going so terribly wrong for him that he needs something to distract him, and his distraction will be the selecting of a new queen. So his personal attendants made a proposal to go on a search for a new queen, and about 400 young virgin women were chosen and put under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch. And here's where we're introduced to Esther. Esther is one of the chosen young virgins. Now remember, these young Virgins were not volunteers, but were chosen and also assembled by the king's special officers. They had no choice. They had no choice but to obey the orders of the special officers. Well, the text says that Esther pleased Haggai and won his favor. Say favor. Then the text says and Haggai immediately provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids, selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best pal- place you'd be in the harem. Now, we know that Esther still has not revealed that she was a Jew. So these 400 young virgin women were to complete 12 months of beauty treatments before they could come before the king. They were also given special instruction on court etiquette, uh, how you act in the imperial court, and what all the expectations were for someone who was around royalty. This was to go on for one year, one whole year. And at the end of the year, each of these 400 beautiful virgin women would have one opportunity, one chance to make an impression on the king to be selected as his new queen. Now, I want to read verses 15 through 17 of this chapter, chapter 2. It says, when the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And this is what it says, and Esther won the favor, there's that word again, favor, of everyone who saw her. Verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Verse 17, now the king was attracted, got it? Attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor. There's that word again, favor, say favor, and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Now, was this a coincidence? Nope. Was it luck? Nope. Was it fortune? Nope. There was a power at work providentially. Listen, friends, it was God, God who was quietly orchestrating his own purposes. It was God who was orchestrating Esther's journey. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of today's message is Mordecai and Haman. Say that, Mordecai, in Haman. Four points from today's text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one. Point number one is Mordecai's detection. Write that down. Mordecai's detection. I have two subpoints under point number one. Again, Mordecai's detection. The first sub point. Here we go. The first sub point is the plot revealed. Write that down. Say that. The plot revealed. So let's look at verse 19 of the text. When the virgins were assembled a second time. And I want to stop there because this most likely means that the king's officers continued to gather beautiful virgin girls for his harem. So let's read that again. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Did you get that? He was sitting at whose gate? The king's gate. Now now this is this is key. Okay, And I'll tell you why, because to sit at the king's gate was a position of honor and also authority. The gate was was the ancient equivalent of our modern law courts, and it was a a place uh, where important official business was transacted. So, So this begs the question, how did Mordecai get this job? It's a great question, right? How did Mordecai get this job? Well, my best guess is that his cousin Esther, Queen Esther at this time, Use her influence to get him this job. Verse 20, stay with me now, verse 20. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Now we saw this back in verse 10, right? And it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background, because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So remember, Mordecai didn't tell Esther to lie or to deny her nationality. He only told her not to proclaim or reveal her nationality. So up to this point, uh, they still did not reveal that they were Jews. Verse 21, verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. These these two guys, Thana and Teresh, uh, were royal officials who guarded the king's private quarters. So they had access to the king. And so therefore, they could easily and readily kill him. Now, we don't know the reason why these two guys conspired to assassinate the king. But there could be two possibilities. And the first possibility is that they resented what the king had done to Queen Vashti. That the king had kicked Queen Vashti out of the royal court. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that they hated the fact that Esther was an outsider. That Esther was an outsider. And you see, traditionally... The Persian kings would select their wives from women within the seven noble families of the land. Now, Esther was an outsider, right? So perhaps they didn't want a commoner on the throne. Well, whatever it was that infuriated these two guys, they plotted, or they were plotting to take the king's life. But but something happens. Notice that something happens. Look, Look at verse 22. But Mordecai found out about the plot. Did you get that? But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Now listen, and you got to get this. In God's providence, say providence, upholding and governing all his creatures and all their actions, he has brought Esther and Mordecai to the very place where they are the only ones able to rescue the king. God's providence, I love this, God's providence enabled Mordecai to hear about the plot. So that's the plot revealed. The 2nd subpoint is the plot recorded. Write that down, the plot recorded. Again, the plot recorded. Look at verse 23 now, verse 23 with me. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. Um, It pretty much means they were impaled on poles. Okay, they were impaled on poles. All this was recorded, say recorded, in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now listen, listen, the Persians kept records of absolutely everything. And that, that's why we know so much about their history. So, so so Mordecai's actions were written down in the royal record because those kinds of things needed to be rewarded. And the kings knew that. They knew that. Loyal, listen, loyalty, you see, loyalty needed to be rewarded as much as disloyalty needed to be punished. Now, now you would think that Mordecai would be rewarded or promoted as was the custom to do immediately. I mean, he saved the king, right? He saved the king's life, but nothing happened. There was no reward, no recognition, no promotion. He was overlooked, unrewarded. He was passed over, perhaps even forgotten. That being said, do you remember a time when you were overlooked or unrewarded? I'm going to say it again. Do you remember a time when you were overlooked or unrewarded. I do. I'm sure you do. I'm sure we all do, right? So so what should we do when that happens? Well, I want you to write this down. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. And Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. Save due time, because that's key. That's key. You see, Mordecai wasn't rewarded right away, but he was rewarded at the right time at a future day. And friends, there would come, listen now, there would come a time when he would be rewarded and recognized and also promoted for saving the king's life. And you see, Mordecai's name was written into the book of the annals, and this fact will play an important part in this story four years later. And that will be found in chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Listen, God, he's awesome, right? God saw to it that the facts were permanently recorded, recorded, and he would make good use of them at the right time, at the proper time, at God's time, on God's time. One whereby said this, Our good works are like seeds, that are planted by faith, and their fruits, listen to what he says, and their fruits don't always appear immediately. Now what comes to mind is Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 40, Joseph, while he was in prison, befriended a fellow prisoner, a cupbearer. And the cupbearer there in prison had a dream. And Joseph interpreted the cupbearer's dream that he would be the cupbearer, that the cupbearer would be restored to his position as Pharaoh's cupbearer. Well, after the cupbearer was released from prison, he had completely forgot about Joseph's kindness for two years, for two years. But in Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh had a dream. And Pharaoh, listen now, needed someone to interpret his dream, but nobody could interpret his dream. Then the cupbearer remembered Joseph, And the cupbearer told Pharaoh about a Hebrew young man who could interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph. Well, you know the rest of the story, right? Joseph interprets the king, King Pharaoh's dream, and then becomes second in command to Pharaoh. There's a lesson here, and here's a lesson. God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is... Is always perfect. Now get this. God sees to it, gotta get this. God sees to it that no good deed is ever wasted. That no good deed is ever wasted. Proverbs 1321, write that down. Proverbs thirteen twenty one, the King James Bible says it like this evil pursueth sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. To the righteous good shall be repaid. I love that. And you see Mordecai couldn't turn to the, to the end of the book to read how it all works out and neither listen friends and neither can we in life, but but we do know the author and we do know that in Romans 8:28 it says, and we know that in all things, Romans 8:28 and we know that in all things God. Works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his what? Purpose, purpose. David Strain writes this, and I love it. He writes, "When I was in art school as an undergraduate in the textiles department, there were a number of students learning to weave. They were weaving the most amazing, huge tapestries on massive looms. And when you look at those tapestries from the back in reverse, they were a chaotic mass of loose, multicolored threads, all hanging down from the various places where they'd been woven, almost impossible to make any sense out of them. Viewed from that perspective, there's no discernible design at all. But when the work is done and you see it from the other side, Each thread is now seen in its relation to all uh, all the other, woven together into a coherent unit that makes perfect sense, full of beauty, leaving us to marvel at the skill of the weaver. This is, or that is, excuse me, that is the providence of God. Our view is looking at the loom from behind. It seems to us often random and chaotic, and incoherent. But viewed from the perspective of God the Master Weaver, each thread of each life is being woven together according to a perfect design and to an amazing tapestry that will, as its completion becomes clear, will make us adore the wisdom of the heavenly artist. God works all things together. We will see one day every thread, every dark and sore trial, as well as every bright and happy blessing for good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The lesson, here's a lesson. Do your responsibility today and let God take care of the consequences. I'm going to say it again. Do your responsibility today and let God take care of the consequences. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, we're not rewarded right away. We're not. We're not rewarded, rewarded right away. But, but a book of remembrance, listen now, is written, and an account is kept of every one of our works and labors of love. Prove it, I will. Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So friends, do your responsibility today and let God take care of the consequences. This now brings us to chapter three. Chapter three and point number two is this. Mordecai's determination. Mordecai's determination determination. Write that down. Mordecai's determination. Verse one, verse one of chapter three. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Now, I want you to think about it. Mordecai saved the king's life, right? He saved the king's life, right? And yet, he didn't receive a word of thanks, no reward or recognition, not even listen, not even a pat on the back. And here you have wicked Haman, and we'll see how wicked he is later on in the text. But here you have wicked Haman, who was promoted to a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but that just that just doesn't seem right. That, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, why is it that those who do evil seem to be getting over, right? It seems that, they be, they, they, it seems that they're getting over on us. But then I got to remind myself, friends, that to trust God. Remember that He knows what God, what God, what He's doing, what He's doing, and that He will deal with the wicked and that He will, listen now, never forsake, say never forsake the righteous or leave their deeds unrewarded. In fact, what I want you to do is, after uh, the sermon today, is read Psalm 37. Read all of Psalm 37. It will encourage you. Now, there's something interesting about Haman. The text says he's a son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Say, Agagite. It says in verse 10, verse 10, that he was an Agagite. Also, in chapters 8 and 9, it says he was an Agagite. And it keeps repeating that, and keeps repeating that. Why? Because this is key to the whole story. It's it's the origin, listen now, it's the origin of Haman's hatred for Mordecai and all of the Jews. And and I'll elaborate on this in uh, the fourth point, okay? Now let's look at verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But say but but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now the word but uh, is is a term on contrast which marks a change or a a change of direction marks a change of direction and always begs the question: What is being contrasted? What is the change of direction? Well, in this case, the change marks a contrasting attitude of Mordecai, which led which led to the following events, and we'll see that as the text unfolds. Now, remember, Vashti refused to obey the king's command, and it cost her what? It cost her role. cost It cost her role as queen. And Mordecai was obviously aware of this, and apparently uh, was willing to count the cost as as well. Mordecai now was determined, say determined, determined not to bow down to Haman. Now there's a lesson, and what's the lesson? Here's a lesson. Doing what is right will not always make you popular. You got it? Doing what is right will not always make you popular. Now, I want to point out something here, okay? And I want to point out that the Jews did, did bow down before people in authority as a sign of respect. So I want you to follow me here. In Genesis 23, 7, write that down. Genesis 23, verse 7, Abraham bowed down to the sons of Heth when he negotiated uh, with them for Sarah's grave. In Genesis 33, verse 3, and verses 6 and 7, Genesis 33, verse 3, and verses 6 and 7, Jacob and his family bowed before Esau. In Genesis 42:6, 42:6, Joseph's brothers bowed down before Joseph thinking he was an Egyptian official. In 1 Samuel chapter 24 verse 8, 1 Samuel 24 verse 8, David bowed down to Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 14 verse 4, 2 Samuel 14 verse 4, and 2 Samuel chapter 18 verse 28, 18, verse 28, the Jews bowed down to one another. Now, why did Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman? It could have been because of Haman's ancestry. And we'll cover that in the fourth point. And we'll look at that in the fourth point. That being said, Mordecai is not the only person in the Bible who, for conscience' sake, practiced civil disobedience. Now, I want you to follow me here, Okay. In Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Exodus 1, 15 through 22, the Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh Pharaoh's orders and refused to kill the Jewish babies. Again, the Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh's orders and refused to kill the Jewish babies. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends refused to eat the king's food refused to eat the king's food. And in Daniel chapter 3, you know this, right? Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's image. And in Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Acts 5, verse 29, the apostles refused to stop witnessing in Jerusalem. Now, I need to point out that in each of these instances, The believers were kind and respectful. Got it? They were kind and respectful. Listen now, listen now. They didn't start riots or burn down buildings. They never revolted. Did you get that? These believers never revolted. Why? Because civil authority, listen now, civil authority is ordained by God. I'm going to say it again. Civil authority is ordained of God. Uh, Romans chapter 13, read that whole chapter. And also 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 23 tells us to obey civil authority. Now, we disobey civil authority if they ask us uh, to do something that is against the character nature of God and His Word. Got it? But other than that, we obey civil authority. Warren Wiersbe said this, and I love it. It is a serious thing for Christians to disobey the law and if we're going to do it, we must know the difference between personal prejudice and biblical convictions. I love that. Point number three is Mordecai's declaration. Write that down. Mordecai's declaration. Mordecai's declaration. Let's look at verses three and four. If you're still with me, say amen. Verses three and four. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he, he, had told them he, speaking of Mordecai, had told them he was a Jew. He was a Jew. So so finally Mordecai reveals his nationality, right? He declares, or declares to them that he's a Jew. And in doing so, he's asking for trouble for both himself and all the Jews, but we know, right? And don't forget that God is working behind the scenes. So Mordecai's declaration number four, number four is Haman's plot of destruction. Haman's plot of destruction. Destruction. Write that down again. Haman's plot of destruction. Now let's look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. If you're still with me, say amen. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to to destroy, listen now, to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So he decided that he would not just kill Mordecai, but also all of the Jews. So so in order to understand Haman's hostility and hatred toward the Jews, we need to go back to understand why it's important to know that he was an Agagite. Say that, Agagite we got to go back almost 1,000 years uh, to the exodus from Egypt. The Israelites come out of Egypt around uh, 1445 B.C., and they were attacked in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, attacked by the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the descendants of Esau, the one who sold his birthright. We know that, right? Now, because the Amalekites attacked the Jews, God cursed the Amalekites, and that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Deuteronomy chapter 25. And God says, simply says that one day they're going to be extinct. And he pronounces a curse on the Amalekites. Well, four centuries later, King Saul, the first king of Israel, conquered the Amalekites. And this story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And what Saul does, Saul captures their king and His king, their king, uh, is Agag, Agag. Listen, Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites and God commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites and to destroy their king. Well, you know what? If you know the story, Saul didn't do it. He didn't do it. He let King Agag live. So, So follow me now. So Saul, for his disobedience, incurred God's displeasure. And for that and for other things, that, the, that displeased God, the throne, was removed from his family, from Saul's family. And the prophet Samuel now stepped in. And do you know what the prophet Samuel did to Agag? Do you know? He hacked Agag to pieces. So follow me here. Haman was an Agagite. And though almost a thousand years had passed since the curse, and hundreds of years had passed since the hacking of Agag to death. Haman knew his family history. And he knew that it was a Jewish man, that it was a, a Jewish prophet by the name of Samuel who had hacked his royal ancestor to pieces. Are you guys with me now? And to make things worse, Mordecai, and you got to get this, Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. And we see that in chapter 2 of Esther, verse 5. And Kish is from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin is in the line of Saul. So they knew their history. So there was deep-seated animosity between the descendants of Saul and the descendants of Agag. In fact, friends, perhaps this is the reason why Mordecai wouldn't bow before Haman. Because why? Because no self-respecting Benjamite would bow before a descendant of the ancient Amalekite enemy of the Jews. If you got it, say, got it. Verse seven, in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, now friend, this is the very month in which the Jews celebrate their deliverance from Egypt, the month of Nisan. They cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month the month of Adar. So the Jews, knowing this, the Jews wouldn't be attacked and massacred for at least, what, 11 months, right? 11 months. Uh, so I want you to write this down, Proverbs 1633. 16, 33. The lot, here we go, the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. So so get this, the long delay between the first month and the month of the massacre against the Jews was ordained by God. And what that would do, it would give Esther and Mordecai time to act. Someone say amen. Now listen, everything about Haman is hateful. He's a hateful man. He's a wicked man. And you can't find one thing about Haman worth praising. In fact, friends, everything about Haman, God hated. Now, I want you to write this down Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. And it says this There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devices wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict among brothers, among the community. Now listen, as we continue to read this book, we will see these seven evil characteristics described in this depraved man, Haman. Haman. Now, it's interesting that some Bible scholars have seen in Haman an illustration of the Antichrist. And and, and they get to that conclusion by this. They say that Haman was given great authority from the king, and Satan will give great power to the Antichrist. And you see that in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. Revelation 13, verse 2 and verse 4. As Haman they say as Haman hated the Jews and tried to destroy them so the Antichrist we know this right will usher in a worldwide anti-Semitism and he will pretend to be friendly to Israel, make a covenant to protect them but he deceives them and breaks that covenant and then comes the abomination of desolation and you find that in Daniel chapter 9 Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 Daniel 9 24 through 27. Now, if you're saved, say Amen because I love this. As Haman was ultimately ultimately defeated and judged, so the Antichrist will be conquered by Jesus and confined to the Lake of Fire. Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 20. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 20. Now, there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. I love this. Here's a lesson. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Say that. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we win too. Don't you love that? We win too. Hey, it's good to be on Jesus' side, right? It is so good to be on Jesus' side. So Jesus wins. Amen? Now let's move on to verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. Is it not the king's best interest to tolerate them? Now we know that Haman is exaggerating about this whole thing. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. That's a lot of money. So this was a promise of a bribe. It was a promise of a bribe. And by the way, the money wouldn't come from Haman's own pocket, friends. Listen, it would be obtained from the property of the slaughter of the Jews. That's how he was going to get this money. Now listen, Haman was both a murderer and a liar, just like Satan, just like Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44, John chapter 8, verse 44, where it says that Satan is a murderer and a liar. Now, two sub points, real quick here, two sub points. The first one is this, the permission. Write that down, the permission. Say that, the permission. Look at verses 10 through 11. If you're still with me, say amen. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha. The Agagite, there's that word Agagite again, the enemy of the Jews. Now I want to stop there. The king simply says, great idea, Haman, great idea. And he hands his signet ring over to Haman so that Haman can stamp that signet ring on documents that will authorize genocide for the Jews. Now let's look at verse 11. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Now, friends, I got to tell you, I believe, I believe the king probably had no idea what he agreed to. I believe that. And he probably believed that he merely agreed to the execution of a handful of revolutionaries in his kingdom. And, and little did he realize, the king, little did he realize that his own ring would sign the death warrant for his queen, Esther. Say the permission. The next subpoint is the proclamation. Write that down. Say the proclamation. The proclamation. Verses 12 through 15. 12 through 15. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now I want to stop there. This was was like other attacks against the Jewish people in history, except that it was announced well in advance. Now, verse 14. Verse 14. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman, listen now, the king and Haman sat down to drink. Now I want to stop there. They sat down, to drink. Now I could almost see the king and Haman with their glasses raised, saying cheers to our plan. Cheers to our plan. Now the king thought he had done well, but again, again I believe he didn't really understand what he had done. Haman thought he had done well, and he knew, Haman knew exactly what he intended to do. That's Read the end of verse 15. But the city of Susa, listen to what it says, was bewildered. But the city of Susa was bewildered. So, so this was a surprise to the Persians in Susa. Now, there may have been some anti-Semitism, but for the most part, the Persians were okay. They were cool with the Jews. They, they were supportive of the Jews. The Jews weren't traitors. Uh, they didn't commit any crime And this is why they, the Persians, were confused that a a decree came forth declaring that these Jews were dangerous enemies. Now, as we come to a close, at this point, it seems like the Jews are doomed and hopeless, right? It seems like they're doomed and hopeless. But in the midst of all of this, listen now, in the midst of all of this God get this now God wasn't sleeping Got it God wasn't sleeping this situation is not hopeless Listen in in his providence and in sovereignty God has two people prepared and in place He has Mordecai and Esther and his plan God's plan would not be hindered nor frustrated. I love that. His plan would not be hindered nor frustrated. In Job 42, 4, write that down. Job 42, 4. Job said, Love this. Job said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Verse 14, Ecclesiastes 3, 14, Solomon said, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing taken from it. God does it, that men should fear before Him. And in Isaiah, Isaiah 46:10, Isaiah 46:10, God said, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, I love this, my purpose will stand and I, God says, will do all that I please. Don't you love that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and blessed to know that in the midst of our situation, whether it be COVID-19 or any other situation, that it's not a hopeless situation because we know that you neither sleep, Lord, nor, nor slumber and that in your providence and sovereignty, you're working out your plan in our situation and your plan, Lord, will not be hindered nor frustrated. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, before I let you go, I want to give you the opportunity, if you have not done so, to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to be your personal Lord and Savior. And if that's you, you need to, listen now, admit that you are a sinner, acknowledge that you need a substitute, and accept Jesus as Savior. You see, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you want to be saved today, repeat this prayer with me. Bow your heads and close your eyes and repeat this prayer. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life to save me, to change me, and to cleanse me of all of my sins. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you today. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, and satisfied, purchased, By the blood of Jesus, I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. For it is in your name I pray, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you, okay? So God bless every one of you. I hope you enjoyed the message. Have a wonderful day. Miss you and love you more. See you next week.